All right. As I started last week, I gave a little bit of my background on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we've been talking for the last few weeks, actually. Uh, I was talking about, you know, living lives that glorify God. Uh, kind of started when Ben shared the week I was gone. You know, that in the life of a Christian, God has certain expectations, but it's different than most of the time when people put expectations on us. God puts the desire in our heart or puts that expectation in our heart by his Holy Spirit, and then he gives us the will to accomplish that by his Spirit, by his grace. So he's involved actively. You know, we, we need to, we talked about sanctification and justification a few weeks ago. You know, how justification takes place in a moment when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are justified. Our sins are forgiven. Everybody that's ever accepted Christ is in the same place in terms of justification. It's a done deal. But then we talked about this sanctification thing, this process that we all go through. It starts once we're justified, but it's not going to stop throughout this life. And it's a process. And differing from justification, we're all in different places in the process. We're all moving, hopefully, towards more of a Christ-likeness. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. Transform us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, more into the image of Christ. We'll never get there completely in this life, but there should be a transformation taking place. And I shared last week how I'm a kind of person who I, I, I like detail. Sometimes it gets in the way of faith, but I do like some detail and structure. And one of the things that I think is so amazing and wonderful and useful about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus lays it out for us. What this outcome or this goal would be of the Holy Spirit in transforming us. He doesn't just say, hey, I want you to be more like me. I want you to be different in the world. Remember, you're, you're just sojourners or travelers here. This isn't your real home. He doesn't just say that, which is a good reminder, but he lays it out for us in chapters uh, <clears throat> 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew in his longest teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to start today, eventually, on the Beatitudes. The title of my message, however, is this. Is Christianity a crutch? Is Christianity a crutch? I'm borrowing a few thoughts here from a sermon that John Piper preached back in the 80s sometime. Because if you're around people who have some negative thoughts or negative opinions about Christianity, you may have heard this. You know, something to the effect that Christianity is just for you weak people. It's just nothing more than a crutch. Like somehow or other, a crutch has all of a sudden become a bad thing. Any of you ever had to use a crutch before or crutches? They're, they're not a bad thing. They help us. They get a, help us get around. But in, in this statement, it's nothing but a crutch. Well, Madeline Murray O'Hare, some of you may be familiar with that name, an atheist, she had this quote, religion is a crutch and only the crippled need a crutch. It's like, why is that criticism of Christianity, why does it hold any validity whatsoever? Why, why do when we hear that, if you've had that thrown at you, it's nothing but a crutch. Man, I, I can remember people saying that to me different times, and every time I'm kind of swimming around looking for the way to best answer it and try to change your thinking and, and convince them that I, I, I'm not weak. 
It's they're attacking us. And that's one of the reasons it's an effective thing is it goes against our mindset, our humanistic or our natural mindset that there's something weak about us. It's an insult to our self-sufficiency, that pride thing that's in us. And I think we all agree that that's not a good thing, right? But when somebody throws that at you, Piper says this. He said, I had somebody come up to me at a meeting one time, and he said, they come up to me and say, you know what? Christianity is just a crutch for weak people. And you know what he said? Yes, it is. That's exactly what it is. But we're all weak. We all need Jesus. We all need Christianity. We need it to be a part of who we are and a part of our life. There's nothing to be ashamed of. The shame comes in rejecting the declaration that we need Jesus. If you want to call him a crutch, call him a crutch. If we're all crippled, we're all crippled. Sin is crippling. It's devastating. It brings death. It separates us from God. If Christianity is what we need, and it is, praise God for it. Piper wrote these words in terms of what gives this credibility in people's minds. He says, The creed behind this criticism of Christianity is the confidence that we are not cripples and that real joy and fulfillment in life are to be found in the pursuit of self-reliance, self-confidence, self-determination, and self-esteem. After all, it's the American way, right? And it gives it power. However, Jesus contradicts this completely in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And we're all sinners. And we need Jesus to save us. You know, Jesus comes as the Messiah. And remember, try to keep in context, this is really his first big teaching. He's, he's uh, been through the wilderness experience, being tempted by the devil. He's been baptized in the water by John the Baptist. He's chosen his disciples, and the multitudes are following him. He's healed. He's cast out demons. He's done all these things. And it says he went up on the mount, and he sat down. There were multitudes, but he called the disciples and started teaching them. And this is who he declared, and this is what he declared. Jesus came as the Messiah, and and his purpose or his proposal is this. You know what? We're going to replace self-reliance with a childlike reliance on God. We're going to replace self-confidence with submissiveness to God and our confidence in Him. We're going to replace self-determination with His sovereign grace and self-esteem with the magnificent mercy for the unworthy. That's His message. And you can imagine to the Jewish mindset, the Messiah wasn't supposed to talk like that. The Messiah was supposed to come in decked out in armor with his weapons on a white horse and going to lead him to victory. The Messiah was to come to provide a victory in the natural, a victory that would set them free in a governmental sense. It's not changed much. It was shaking up their religion of the day, which, yes, we know it was Jewish, but it was really a religion of self-determination. 
we can be this. And the evidence that we're successful are this, 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 and this. It's interesting. It's been the dominant religion of humanity since the time of Adam and Eve. From the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, when the serpent spoke to him, he established a religion, whether you know it or not. The religion of self-determination. He says, you will not die. You will become like God. And they believe the lie. And it's a lie that's been believed up till today. Somehow or other, we can determine our our future. This whole idea of self-determination out of self-esteem and self-confidence and all of these things. And so it's remarkable when you think of how Jesus opens up this amazing teaching in these three chapters of Scripture. You can make lots of different applications. You can study it much deeper than we are going to in these uh, next few weeks. But I want us to look at it and see he is coming and he is starting this out with this blessedness. Blessed are, happy are, content are. And he's doing it in such a way that it would totally contradict the thinking of the day. Totally contradicts the thinking of today just as well. He comes with teaching in a way that's different than all the other teachers. He comes teaching that happiness is not found in honor. It's not found in riches. It's not found in splendor or fame or sensual pleasure. None of those things provide real lasting happiness. Contrary to the world of that day and it's contrary to the world of today. You know, you, you listen to all the advertising on TV, you read advertising in print, you read advertising online, and everything's about if you just have these things somehow or other into your life, you'll find that happy place, that place of blessedness. And it's such a line of garbage. None of it brings happiness that lasts. None of it brings blessedness. So we're going to look this morning probably, hopefully, at the first three of what we call the Beatitudes. Uh, starting in verse 3, four, and five. And I'm going to break the the Beatitudes into three different groups. The first three that we're going to talk about today show our great need. Our great need. You may have not ever looked at those three Beatitudes that way as our great need. I hope that by the time we get finished, you'll see they are the great need of all humankind. The fourth one is the answer. And then the remaining ones share all the blessedness and the promises of the fourth one. The first one, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First question is, what is poor in spirit? And I'm going to use the word a sense of, because... there's got to be a sensing. There's got to be a sense of or an understanding or even a feeling, if you would like. And if you know me, I don't like to talk about feelings determining much when it comes to our theology. But there needs to be a sense of feeling and understanding that we are powerless in ourself. In terms of eternity, and that's why it's so hard for our minds to kind of grab some of this, we think in such short temporal ways. When we think about the rest of our life, how many of us know we think in terms of it stopping the day we die? The reality is we're not even close to the end of our life because I can't define what the end of eternity might look like. This is just a phase of our life. We are eternal beings. 
But we look at it in such a way that we think somehow or other we have this great power in us and we have no power. So there's a sense of powerlessness. There's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy. Helplessness before God. Poor in spirit. I am helpless before God. If I was called to stand before a holy and righteous God in my own gifts, my own humanness, my own nature, it it would be instant destruction. And there's nothing I could do about it. Nothing. A sense of powerless, a sense of spiritual bankruptcy, and a moral uncleanness. Are you starting to get this picture? Poor in spirit. We know and are just understanding and sensing and feeling that we have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to God in and of our own selves, in and of our own strength. It's just a personal unworthiness. And it leads us to this place in our life, or it should lead us to this place in our life, where we begin to understand if there's going to be any hope, life, joy in this life, it has to come from God. It will all be from God by grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that know in and of our own selves, there's nothing good there. It points us to receiving the grace of God. Who are the poor in spirit? Well, objectively, everybody is poor in spirit. The problem is most of the world doesn't know it. We are all born helpless before God. We are powerless before God. We are morally unclean before God. There is nothing we can bring to God. So really, everybody is the poor in spirit. That's why I said, but we have to realize it. Most of the world doesn't realize it. They are still in that religion of self-determination, this self-esteem, self-confidence. We can do it. We can do it. You know, it's the American motto almost. You know, you can do it. You can accomplish it all. You know, those things sound good. They're just not true. In and of ourselves, it's eternally not true. By the world standards, can you accomplish great things? Sure. But it all burns. All that stuff is, is junk. Dung, if you would. Only those who feel and sense and recognize this fact and turn to God will be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For those For theirs is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Drives us to the grace of God, the blessedness. There is a power being in the kingdom of God. We have a place, a presence. We're holy and righteous. So the poor in spirit are those that realize our great need and turn to God. And really the second one and the the first one should go together. The second great need, blessed are those that mourn. The first great need is to recognize we're powerless. It's hopeless without God. The second great need is this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, you can look at this in more than one way. You know, you could say, yeah, we will be comforted. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter in the natural when there's a time of mourning in our life because of circumstances. Yes, we we can be comforted. But I believe the meaning is much deeper than that. I believe that the meaning goes into the area of sin. Blessed are those 
who mourn. Those that grieve over their sin. We're truly sorry that we have committed those sins. We are wounded in our spirit because we've offended God. Now, I would confess that there's lots of times I sin and it doesn't go to that depth. But it should. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, those that are sorry, those that realize, at least to the degree humanly possible, of what sin does to grieving the Father's heart. It's not just, whoops, I I blew it. I slipped up again. Hopefully he just kind of winks and waves and lets us go. No, this sin grieves. It brings a deep grieving to our spirit, a mourning to our spirit. And then it says they will be comforted, comforted by the gospel, comforted by the forgiveness of those sins. So you can see, blessed are the poor in spirit. We need to realize our condition so we turn to the solution. We need to realize what sin is to a holy and righteous God. We need to grieve, mourn about that so we are brought to that place of confession, repentance. And we were comforted. What greater comfort is there? And thinking about this, even this morning in pre-service prayer, it's just, yeah, just think what we have to be thankful for just for our forgiveness of that junk, the sin in our life. What a comfort it is to know that all that stuff is gone. God's never going to hold it against me ever again. It's just gone because of Jesus, what he did. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin because we will be comforted. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, it says, For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. That's what this means, this mourning. That's... There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Mourning and sorrow that leads to salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight, scripture that's familiar to most of you probably, it's come to me. All you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those that understand that great need that we have is to have this godly sorrow for our sin. For they shall be comforted. That comfort comes from the knowledge of knowing that our sins have been forgiven. You are forgiven. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he is called the comforter. What a gift we have. And the third great need, I believe, is in the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. You know, I I came across a story, an illustration, I guess. And it it took place in India. And it was written down by a missionary to India many years ago. And he said there was a Brahmin. A Brahmin is a caste of, in the Hindu religions of, of India. 
and it's kind of kind of considered a higher class. Their spiritual uh, purity is supposed to be greater, and they can do certain things and offer certain sacrifices. But here's what this this uh, illustration or story says: This Brahmin compared a Christian missionary to the mango tree. How would you like to be compared to a tree? We compared it to a mango tree, but here's what he said. All its branches hang heavy with fruit. It is then assailed with stones and clubs by passerbys, trying to knock down the fruit. How does the tree respond? By dropping fruit at every blow at the feet of the very ones who assail it. And at the close of the season, it stands scarred and battered, its leaves torn off, and its branches broken. But with the next year, it bears more fruit than the previous year. He went on to say, that is what our meekness should do in the world. Not try to conserve its self-esteem, but to bear fruit. Fruit that descends low at the attack of cruel words and actions. And I like this statement. He said, Christian meekness cannot be exercised in isolation. It must be manifested within the framework of a society, a society that hates the Lord Jesus Christ openly or subtly and all who stand for him. Meekness. For our Christian meekness to manifest and to be the real deal, it needs to to manifest in a society and a culture that hates Christ, that hates the Lord whether blatantly and openly or subtly. Boy, we're living in more and more in that culture. We're living in a culture where it's almost a derogatory thing in lots of circles to be called a Christian. The abuse, the persecution. You know, Jesus was the meekest man that's ever walked on the earth. All of the abuse that he ever took, any of the person he ever took, all of it, was unjustified. He never deserved any of it, and yet he took it. Man, we, we, we're quick. We're quick to defend ourselves. We're quick to take up our weapons in the natural, in the flesh, and defend ourselves. You know, the Jewish idea of kingdom was military and materialistic. Here Jesus comes preaching this, that he says, be different. My kingdom's totally different. It's different in quality. Now, an unbeliever could hear this and they'd say, boy, what an arrogant Christian, but we should be different in quality. We are new creatures in Christ. When we have been born again, we are a new man. We are children of God. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. He declares us pure. He declares us holy. We belong to a different kingdom. Christians are to be of a different quality. We might look the same on the outside, but what's inside should be totally different from the world, and that's what the world should see. The fruit of the mango tree, so to speak. That doesn't mean we go looking for persecution. That doesn't mean we go out there and do silly, stupid things, unless the Lord tells you to do a silly, stupid thing. But it's really telling us there's this attitude that we should have of Christ-likeness, of meekness. It's really the true view. It's the real view 
of ourselves. And it should be expressed in our attitude and the way that we conduct ourselves around the world, even in the midst of persecution, whatever that persecution might look like. To be truly meek means we no longer need to protect ourselves. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Obviously, we defend ourselves if we're in physical danger, physical attack, all that. But we're so quick to defend ourselves when someone says something bad about us, for example. Someone puts us down. And boy, we rise up to defend ourselves. In true meekness, we don't need to defend ourselves. Christ is our defense. We're not a doormat for the world, but we're not going to stand in our own strength, in our own self-confidence, our own self-determination. Our, our self-confidence, our self-esteem comes from one thing and one thing only, knowing who we are in Jesus Christ. That's it. So we don't need to defend ourselves. We need to get to that place where there is no spirit of retaliation in us. How many of you ever said, I don't get angry, I just get even? Come on. Am I the only one that says that? That was my life motto for many years. Out of my insecurities, out of my fear of rejection, out of my fear of being hurt, I'm not going to get angry because I'm not going to let them have the satisfaction of knowing they hurt me, but I guarantee you I will get even. And then some. We need, there should be nothing of that left in us. That whole spirit of retaliation needs to be gone if we're truly meek. We need to discover that the fruit of patience and long-suffering is really in there and let that manifest in our lives. Remembering that Jesus' suffering was all unjust. And probably the hardest thing to really do to be truly meek in this sense is to just leave everything, ourselves, our rights, our cause, and our futures to God. How's that for an assignment? Just, I'm going to give it all to him. Doesn't mean we pull up a recliner or a lazy chair and just let him do his thing. No, we just surrender ourselves and we go and do whatever he wants us to do, wherever the Holy Spirit would lead us, living and walking as if we truly are the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, which we are. And it says, the meek are the ones that shall inherit the earth. In a sense, we will one day rule with Christ. That's absolutely true. That's very future. But they shall inherit the earth could also be written this way. They shall be satisfied and content. We can be meek and humble, surrendering our life to him. And in the midst of that, no matter what's going on around us in circumstances, we will be satisfied and content. We will inherit the earth. Luke 14, 11 says, Whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Three great needs. Poor in spirit, we need to understand our helplessness before God. Those who mourn, it should grieve us when we sin against our Heavenly Father and walk in meekness and humility even if it's painful. Even if it causes suffering. Because we have the promises. Theirs is the kingdom of God. They shall be comforted and we will inherit the earth. And next week we'll start with looking at the fourth beatitude, the answer, the solution to our great needs.
Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are patient and long-suffering with us. God, I thank you that you love us so much and so unconditionally that you walk through life with us, desiring to lead and guide, but you don't abandon us when we go our own way. Lord, I pray that each one of us would surrender ourselves anew and afresh to your Holy Spirit. God, we do recognize our helplessness of our sinful condition. We could do nothing about it. We thank you and praise you for extending the grace and giving us the faith to to believe and receive salvation through Jesus. I pray you would help us to see sin how you see sin. God, that we would see that we're hurting your Father's heart, grieving your heart, that it would cause us quickly to confess that sin and get back in right relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that you continue to grow humility in each one of us. Father, it goes against our flesh in such a powerful way that we would surrender ourselves to you, to your Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in every area of our life. Father, we pray these things that we may be blessed as you declare. But God, we pray these things more especially that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would receive glory and honor, that your kingdom would advance. Pray, Lord, that you would draw us to your word this week in a way we've never maybe been drawn before, that we would hunger and thirst after you. I pray your protection over us as we, many may be traveling today. God, I thank you again for all the fathers, the men. pray you would bless them. God, I pray it would be a, a day of refreshing as we gather with friends or family. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.